Before we pray, I want to read a letter. I got the letter just yesterday. The sermon's all been written, and then the letter comes. A stranger was in our midst last Sabbath. Went home and wrote me a letter. I got it just yesterday. We're talking about how to be contagious for the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to this letter. It's a short letter. And it's written to you. Dear Pioneer Memorial. I can't keep this letter to myself, see? Last Saturday, I was a visitor at your church and I wanted to drop you a short line to let you know how much it meant to me and the encouragement I received. To begin with, I am not an Adventist, but I am studying and considering your church. I've been to a lot of denominations only to find disappointment. I'm not saying all are bad. I have just had bad experiences. I've been to churches where all they're interested in is my wallet. Or I have, left, I have felt left out because I am not a doctor or a lawyer and am just a blue-collar worker. I've also been to churches where not one person talked to me as a visitor and have left feeling worse than when I came in. Well, in short, I found a totally different case when I visited your church. To begin with, when I came in, I felt welcomed by a number of people at the visitor's desk. Thank you, thank you, thank you to you who give up your mornings to stand at that desk to welcome the strangers who come to our midst. Bless you. Thank you. Okay, so I was welcomed by a number of people at the visitor's desk. A lady even introduced me to people and escorted me to a pew. Whoever you are, thank you. God bless you. And then I also found people I sat with very friendly. Thank you. Thank you. After the service, another lady took me to Sabbath school. Thank you. And was greeted by a group of about ten very nice people. Ten times thank you. Especially a big thank you to Brian Vonderpalski, who made me feel at home and had a great class in absence of the teacher. Thank you, Brian. After class, people invited me to lunch downstairs. Thank you. Thank you. And a few people invited me to their home. Whoa. Thank you. I have never had this before. Dinner was great, and the Marls were excellent hosts. Thank you. Thank you, Marls. Afterwards, three people gave me their cards and phone numbers if I ever wanted to talk and had any questions. Thank you. Leaving back and driving to the city, and he lists the city, not very far from us, I felt something special and knew in my heart this was the love that Christ talked about. I am sure I'll be back. I may even try the Adventist church here in, and he lists the city. Signs his name. Oh, P.S. Pastor Oliver, your sermon was fantastic. Thank you, Pastor Oliver. I heard it was very good. So a big thank you, last line, a big thank you to all. You know, ladies and gentlemen, this is what contagious Christianity is all about. And you did it. I'm so grateful for you. I have a dream for this huge congregation. That we will not only be contagious when we're here in worship. I have a vision of a day when we will move and cover this entire county. And on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, we will be just as contagious. In fact, we will be so contagious that the people we work with and play with and study with are going to say, oh, what is the, what's up with that? I want to know what you've got. And they will come because of your contagious witness. That's my dream. And you are proof that God is fulfilling what He has called us to be. Thank you very much. My friend Liz Beck, who runs Fireside Fellowship, sent me a fax this last week. She said, Dwight, I want you to know this motto hangs over our fireplace. Thought it would be of interest to you. It motto reads, Some people may never know the love of God till they see it in another person.
That's the truth. Be contagious for Jesus. And again, thank you, leaders. Thank you, pew occupiers. Thank you very, very much. Let's pray. Oh, God, we do want to be contagious. Seven days a week, we want to exude with the cheerful, buoyant witness of why we are what we are. And so as our journey now continues in the Word, speak to us. Challenge us today. Oh, this is one we dare not miss. Make it clear. In Jesus, our Lord, we wait upon you. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention right now to the screens. I'm going to put some pictures on the screen of postmodern people. These are people who now live in the third millennium. They could be in London, where I just came from. They could be in New York. They could be in Chicago. They can be Detroit. They can be in L.A. Look at these faces. Look at those postmodern faces. They're third millennials. In fact, you know, to be postmodern now is essentially to be post-Christian. It's to be secular. Look into these faces. I want you to look into their faces because I'm asking, I'm thinking to myself, how contagious can my faith be to penetrate into those well-manicured countenances? How can I get through to them? How can you? You live with them. You work with them. What can God do to break through to Western society? Uh, you know what? Western society today has essentially pushed God out of the box of their consciousness and existence. God just is no longer in the box. He's gone. How is a big God going to break through to a postmodern third millennial generation? Now look at the sea of faces. Look at that. Look at those faces. How are we going to reach them with the everlasting gospel? They're in every city on earth. But today, having come back from London... I am especially convicted that our postmodern world, ladies and gentlemen, is not just postmodern. Our postmodern world has now become post-Christian. It is a secular world. It is essentially pagan. That's the world that we have been called to be contagious in. Pagan. Let me tell you about England for a moment. Do you know I read this in the newspaper? This was a survey done in the British Isles. Oh, it was also done in Europe. So the same questions were asked, and the English, by the way they answered the questions, and I never will forget the headline in the, in the London paper, English described themselves as the most godless people in Europe. Isn't that an enigma? Isn't that an anomaly? You think about it. This is England, where the brothers John and Charles Wesley, the Holy Spirit through those two anointed preachers, the greatest revival in the history of the Christian church took place in England. And now, three centuries later, they, are at, they say, we're the most godless of all. I read about a survey in our papers over here about you know, just at the turn of the year, six weeks ago. In the United Kingdom's 2001 census, you know, we did the census. They did their census. They asked the question, what is your religious affiliation? All right. So many Britons put down this particular answer that when the government published the report of the, of the census, they had to put this answer as one of the religious affiliations. So many British wrote down, I am a Jedi Knight. Religion? That's Hollywood. That is George Lucas religion. What is this? I had the privilege of meeting with 170 church leaders from the British Isles in a, about three hours north of London in a place called Swanwick. For four days, we met and worshipped and prayed and preached together. 
They, they, they handed these statistics out. And I want you to see the statistics from England. These are their statistics. Look at this. Christianity in England today. The ch- church closure. Six churches a week for the last two decades of the 20th century. Six churches a week were closing for the last 20 years of the 20th century. Six a week. Closed. Make it into a pub. Next one. Look at this. 60% of present churches were built before 1850. They're not building new churches. They were built before 1850. Look at this one. 52% of churches have no teenagers. One half of their churches have no teenagers. Look at this platform full of teenagers. Half of their churches don't have a single teenager. Not a single one. Look at this one. What's this one? 4% of the churches in England have no children under the age of three. Just no, there's no generation coming. Zero, zero. What's the next one here? Children and teenagers are staying away from the English church in droves. Half of church decline has been the non-attendance of children under 15 years of age. Half of the decline is attributed to, we don't have kids coming to church anymore. The English church is in big trouble. You say, oh boy, good. I'm sure glad that we live in America. Where, you're right, our church attendance figures are higher. 7% of, the, of English go to church. 37% on a given Sunday or weekend, we'll say are in church in the United States. So it's higher here. But you know where we're going, folks? Do you know how the graph is going in the U.S. of A? It is going down. We're headed to paganism. Look at this. The U.S. Catholic Magazine in October of 2001 shared this amazing website. What's the website called here? MIGodOrNot.net. You just write that whole thing out. MIGodOrNot.net. They said, vote for who you think God is. One being, no, not God. Ten being truly God. Jesus scored five. Well, let's see who he beat, beat in the competition. Oh, good. He beat McDonald's. All right. I see we have a McDonald's shopper in our midst. And it's just. All right. He beat McDonald's. Number two. Oh, good. Two percent. Ranking of two. Twisted sister. Let's go to. Oh, Bill Gates. Three point one. Oh, he beat him. Captain Kirk of Star War. I mean, no, uh, Star Trek. Sorry. Three point three. Elvis. Three point six. Oh, he got over Elvis. Krishna. Four point three. Beat uh, Krishna. Now here comes Jesus at five. Ranked just halfway between. Who beat Jesus? Homer Simpson. Five point two. Beer. Five point five. Napster. Six point one. Kermit the Frog, 6.4. Bikini-clad bathing beauty, 7.6. Ladies and gentlemen, our nation is headed to a postmodern, post-Christian, secular, essentially pagan existence. Don't you think that the numbers are on our side for Christianity in America? They are not. I repeat, it took this trip to London to solidify this conviction. I'm even more persuaded that our Western society is indeed Post-Christian, secular, and essentially pagan. In fact, may I say this? The post-Christian West is the most formidable challenge facing the church in the third millennium. It's not New Guinea. Oh, I love New Guinea. I've been there. It's not Africa. Been there. It's not India. Been there. It's not China. Been there. That is not our new challenge in the third millennium. The greatest mission field the church faces today are the cities and society of the West in Europe, Australia, and North America. It is the Western world that presents the most formidable challenge to the church. And my brother Greg, who's going to be with us in just a few hours, comes from one of the most secular cities. We are a land now in need of missionaries. We are. And guess what? You are the missionary God is needing. 
And so in this new season, we've been asking ourselves the question, how contagious, how informed, how influential can we make our faith and our witness for Jesus Christ? So what is this series called? The Contagious Adventist. How to share seven buoyant, cheerful, winsome, attractive, contagious reasons why you are what you are. Because now more than ever, we are a land in need of missionaries. And I don't mean the kind that wear a bun on the back of their heads or white socks underneath their dark trousers. That's just a caricature, isn't it, of missionaries. I apologize to all the missionaries who are here. God is calling for missionaries who are dressed just like you. To enjoy the lifestyle you enjoy. He is calling for young missionaries. He's calling for old missionaries who might incarnate the everlasting gospel into this culture and translate it into the language of the third millennium. And you're it. You're the missionary God is needing. In fact, let's begin by filling out our study guide right now so that this point does not get away from our consciousness. In your bulletin this morning is a study guide. Ushers are standing right now because some of you didn't get a bulletin. Just hold your hand up and that usher is going to get the study guide to you. I want everybody here to have it. The choir has it. Good. Pull your study guides out. You've got a TV monitor on the screen so you can, on the stage rather, so you can fill it in. Now those of you who are watching on the screen right now, go to our website www.pmchurch.org. That's our Pioneer Memorial Church website. And this study guide will be there. In fact, all the study guides of our series so far, all the presentations of our series so far. And so if you've just tuned to the television and you're hearing this for the first time, good news, my friend. Go to that the website. You can have every presentation we have been undertaking together. All right. Catch my breath here and go to the study guide. Study guide right there at the top. Contagious reason number four. Our Western society is not only postmodern, it is now, write it in, post-Christian. Write in the word post-Christian. Two words actually hyphenated. And secular. And essentially pagan. So write in those three words that you see on the screen right now. You see, we have become a land. Keep your hand up. They're going to get to you. We have become a land in need of missionaries. Write in the word missionaries. The West is now needing missionaries. And don't put your right in the word, I'm the missionary God is needing. Nice to say, point to the guy beside you and say, oh, by the way, you're the one God's... Oh, you, my friend, point the finger at yourself. I'm the one God is needing. As a lead up to contagious reason number four, let me tell you about a lawyer I met just a few days ago. On our overnight flight to London... I had a very interesting conversation with a Chicago lawyer who is a Jew. Okay? He happened to glance across the aisle. Karen and I are sitting right by the window, and then there's just two seats by the window, and then he's across the aisle. He glanced at a book Karen was reading about pre-World War II Vienna, Austria, and so he inquired. He said, hey, I see that Vienna is in the title of your book, and I'm wondering what it's about. And so Karen explained to him that it's a story about a family during the fall of Vienna to the forces of Hitler, to which he immediately replied, the reason I ask is because I was a child in Vienna before it fell, and my father, mother, sister, and I had to flee the city because because we were Jews for fear we were afraid of being incarcerated in those dreaded labor camps we fled he said we fled to the United States we moved to New York he said I became a lawyer in New York City but for the last 20 years I've been practicing law in the windy city of Chicago and then he asked what I did for a living and knowing that he was a practicing Jew it seemed to be the perfect opportunity to point out that we shared something very special in common in God's gift of the seventh day Sabbath so I shared that. It turns out his legal secretary was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and he knew all about my faith. So I said, listen, why are you going to London? 
To which he replied that a 42-year-old son of a very dear friend of his in London had just succumbed to cancer. The boy had been like a godchild to him, and so he was flying overnight to be at the young man's funeral the next day. To which I made the com comment, you know, uh, how grateful we can be for the hope we have in God. And when I said that, he said to me, oh, but my belief is that the only immortality we experience is the life that goes on being lived in our children and grandchildren after we die. I mean, that's everlasting life. Life just keeps going on after I'm dead and buried in my, you know, in my family tree. Well, that opened the door for conversation right through dinner across the aisle. And at one point he said, you know, I wish, I, I wish I could believe it, but, you know, I don't believe there is life after this life. And in the pauses of our conversation, I am racking my mind and saying, look, it, what do I, I, I got to share a word of hope to this man. I'm not going to quote the New Testament. What do I share? Finally, in the pause in our conversation, talking back and forth, I said, look, look, tell me the truth. At the funeral tomorrow, wouldn't you love to be able to put your arms around your dear friend who has lost his son and tell him that he can have hope that one day he will see his son again? Wouldn't you just love to do that? And he said, oh, I've got to be honest. You're right. I would love to, of course. I just wish I believed that were true. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is no great point being proven in that conversation. An argument is not being won. We were not having an argument. But I relate that conversation to you because it is, I believe, a metaphor of the hunger that lies deep in the postmodern secular heart. It is a hunger for hope. Hope. People want to hope in the third millennium. And so our first key text, you would never think of linking it to contagious reason number four, but I'm going to insist that it become our first key text so that you will never forget the society to which God has called you to be contagious. Would you put it down in your study guide, please? We are on a roll now. Let's go. Key text number one, Zechariah 9, right in the verse 12. Right in verse 12. And in order to save time, we're going to read these texts today straight off the screen. Those of you watching on television, just go to the screen and watch. Okay, keep your eyes there. Here, here's Zechariah 7:12. God is speaking. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. God says, look it, I know who you are. You are prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. We live in a generation that now can be described that very way. In fact, would you write it in? We are all prisoners of hope. Do you know what a prisoner of hope is? I mean, come on, what is it? What is a prisoner of hope? I want to take a very poignant headline out of our news. The wife of Daniel Pearl. The recently kidnapped Wall Street Journal reporter in Karachi, Pakistan. Daniel Pearl. You know Daniel. This woman who, seven months pregnant, has pleaded with the media, through the media, to his abductors, exchange places. Let me, let me go there. You, you, you set him free. I will be your captive. This woman who was living with these conflicting rumors. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he, where, where, is, where is he? Nobody knows. Now, I wrote this Thursday afternoon. Went to the news Thursday night. And we got the word, didn't we, that they have video evidence now that he was brutally slaughtered. Until she got the evidence. Marianne, I believe, is her name. French woman. She was a prisoner of hope. 
Do you know what a prisoner of hope is? She dared to believe that the final chapter had not yet been written and she hoped against hope for a happy ending. That's what it means to be a prisoner of hope. The Bible describes all of us in this generation as such prisoners in this life, hoping against hope that the final chapter has not yet been written and that there will be a happy ending. That Chicago lawyer, he doesn't know it. He is a prisoner of hope. He said, oh, I wish, I wish, Dwight, I could believe. A prisoner of hope. The people you work with are prisoners of hope. The people you live next door to are prisoners of hope. The people you study with and play with, we're all prisoners of hope. Although we've got to be candid... Many postmodern, many post-Christian secular pagans have abandoned all hope and are lunging through life as if there were no tomorrow. Have you ever heard that phrase? As if there were no tomorrow? What's the problem? I have no hope. I have no hope. I'm going to... The old Budweiser commercial. You've got to grab for all the gusto you can. You only go through life once. I have no hope. In fact, let's put this in our study guide. Jot it down. Next key text, and I want this to be linked with Zechariah chapter 9. Let's put it down. Ephesians chapter 2, two verses now, verse 3, then a comma, then verse 12. Ephesians 2, verse 3, and then verse 12. Paul, to a T, is describing postmodern third millennial West. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. We were just going for everything we could, believing there was no tomorrow. Now, verse 12, God, Paul is right. These, the people reading the letter were pagans. They've now become young Christians. They were pagans, see, like our generation. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to jot down the New Living Translation's rendering of that last line. Let's put it up here. Would you jot it down? You lived in this world without God and without hope. Academic atheism. Better known as naturalism or Darwinism is a worldview utterly bankrupted of hope. What the universities of the West are teaching, zero hope. And you add to that Hollywood's predominant message. What's on the silver screen? It is a life without God. It is a life without hope. And because of the power of academic influence and the power of the entertainment industry, we have an entire Western generation now that has bought in to that fallen pagan philosophy. You have no God and you have no hope. No hope. Whoa. I think of the faces that will be gathered in Piccadilly Circus tonight. We were two Saturday nights ago. We were in Piccadilly Circus. This is the Times Square of London. And I looked into those faces and I thought, how are we going to connect? And that's the reason I was in England, to help the church over there, to work together with Faith for Today and television to somehow connect with the English society. How are we going to connect? I think of that Chicago lawyer. Without God? No, he has God. Without hope? Where is his hope? Which being interpreted, ladies and gentlemen, means that our world is ripe and ready for contagious reason number four. Let's put it down. No sense beating around the bush anymore. By way of review, let's put it put it uh, in that study guide. I predict most of you can remember this. What is contagious reason number one? Without looking at the screen, Jesus is what? Don't look. What's the screen? Jesus is Lord. Contagious reason number two, the Sabbath is, don't look, the Sabbath is rest. Very good. Contagious reason number three, the law is 
In my heart. That's good. Now let's put it down. Contagious reason number four. And notice it's a capital A. The advent is hope. Would you write those two words in, please? The advent is hope. And by the way, if you say that sentence very fast, do you know how it turns out? The advent is hope. I didn't know that. Holy Spirit gave it, and then afterwards I found out why He gave it. The Advent is hope. The Advent is hope. Yeah, that's it. The soon coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. I repeat, our world is ripe and ready for contagious reason number four. The Advent is hope. I mean, what could be more cheer-filled? What could be more joy-filled than that, than that contagious reason? I'm reading a book right now. In fact, it is Philip Yancey's latest book. Do you like Philip Yancey? Oh, his newest book is called Soul Survivor, subtitled How My Faith Survived the Church. That's an, very intriguing. And he shares in that book 12 individuals, 12 writers, most of them are writers, 12 people through history who have dramatically shaped his faith. He has a chapter on G.K. Chesterton, the English journalist and apologist of the 20th century. And he makes a point about Chesterton that I want to put on the screen. It's, it's applicable to us. Yancey's writing, Chesterton seemed to sense instinctively, now get this, that a stern prophet, listen now, that a stern prophet will rarely break through to a society full of religions, cultured despisers. For people who are already down on Christianity as they are in England and are becoming in this nation... You can't take this kind of judgmental, den denunciatory, stern approach. You better come back to God. They say, you are crazy. I don't even like the sound of the God you're asking me to come back to in the first place. He says, no, 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 no. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, contagious reason number four. You want a joy-filled, cheerful reason. This is it. Contagious reason number four. Let's put down our key text now. Now, we're, now we'll put the pieces together. Rapid fire sequence here. Key text number three. Titus 2. Write down the two verses. 11 and 13. Titus 2. 11 and 13. And then let's put the text on the screen. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Would that include the postmodern, post-Christian, secular West? Would it? Oh, yes. Grace of God has appeared to all. Okay, now let's go to verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we are prisoners of hope. We are waiting for the blessed hope of Jesus return to this earth. Wow. Would you, would you write that in under key text 3? The second coming. Please put it in. The second coming of Jesus is the blessed hope. Hope. Right in those three words. The second coming of Jesus is the blessed hope. And that is why Scripture is laced and woven from stem to stern with the promises of Christ's return. In fact, let's just keep it going here. You can keep your study guide in front of you. I'm going to give you some statistics. Take a look at these. There are over 1,500, write it in, there are over 1,500 prophecies, promises of Jesus' second coming in the Bible. Man, that, that's impressive. In fact, in the Old Testament, get this down. For every prophecy of His first coming, there are eight predicting His second coming. Eight to one ratio. 
in the Old Testament. You want to know what it is in the New Testament? Get this. In the New Testament, the return of Jesus is mentioned once in every five verses. So write in the number five. It's no wonder it's called the blessed hope. It is the pinnacle hope of all inspiration. And yet, have you noticed how quickly it gets blotted out of the sky of our own consciousness? Even we, look, 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 even we who call ourselves Adventists, I'm ashamed to admit this to you, but I don't know how often it is. I, I go through the day utterly disconnected and unconscious of this greatest promise in all, in all of Scripture, that Jesus is coming soon. I live my day as if that promise meant diddly squat to me. I try to negotiate my way. I try to survive through business, professional, career, family moves. I try to survive with the, with the little bit of wit I have. And I forget that I live on a planet that has the hope that God of the universe is coming back to it. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, he, you know, he's a Christian apologist, also an Englishman, by the way. He put these words describing what it's like for you and me. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like, this is the postmodern generation, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That is what's happened to you and me, isn't it? We're too easily pleased. I got it okay. I mean, you know, I'm making it here at the university. I'm not doing too bad in my career. We are far too easily pleased. I thought this was insightful. Lewis says, no, no, no. Think of the heart of the post-Christian secular Westerner. Lewis writes these words here. The next slide, please. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The Chicago lawyer says, oh, I, I, I wish I could believe that. Man, I wish I could believe that. The people in Piccadilly Circus tonight in Times Square. Man, I'm lurching through life, lunging in hopes that because there's no tomorrow. I wish it weren't true. I wish there were a tomorrow. The fact that there's a longing means I was made for another life and another world. I don't belong here in this state. Whoa. So, a world ripe and ready for contagious reason, number four. Let's put, oh, how could we leave this one off, please? The most beloved of all promises practically in all of Scripture. Would you put it down in your study guide, please? John chapter 14. What verses, by the way? Ah, oh, you're right. Verses 1 through 3. Everybody knows John 14, 1 through 3. That is a Christian living in the hope of Jesus' return. And in fact, let's not even read it out of the old King James, which is how most of us memorize these words. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it, and we'll read it right out of that. Jesus speaking on the eve of His crucifixion. All right? This is Thursday night, upper room. Don't be troubled. You trust God. Now, trust in Me. There are many rooms in My Father's home, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If this were not so, in fact, I would tell you plainly. I like that. When everything is ready, whoa, I will come 
and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Isn't that beautiful? When everything is ready, I'm coming to get you. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we, are, we, do, we do ourselves a disservice if when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Give me a reason for the hope that is within you. Tell me why are you what you are. And, you, and this is what we normally always do. We take the second half of our name, Adventist, and we say, I want to tell you what I am. I am somebody that believes Jesus is coming soon. Wrong, 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 wrong. Never start with contagious reason number four. It is vital that you always begin with contagious reason number one. And contagious reason number one is Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He is my forever friend. And that's why the second coming is such hope-filled good news. John 14 wants to make certain we remember that a relationship is at the heart of this buoyant, buoyant hope. Have you been watching the Olympics you can be honest with me. You know, I mean, some places you can't be honest about this, but you can be honest with me. Have you been watching? Oh, we missed, you know, the first few days there in England. So, yeah, I've been seeing them late at night. And did you see this this last week? In fact, I saw him interviewed on the Today Show the next morning, and he was in tears. It's beautiful. One of those touching moments that the press love to hold on to. I'm talking about the first Mexican-American to ever win a gold medal at the Olympic Games. His name, Derek Parra. The 1,500 speed skating meter, five feet, four inches tall, set a world record, and there he is. Put his glasses on his head and carried the American flag around, and he was crying. And they asked him the next morning, why those tears? He said, you know what? I have been training for weeks now, apart from my wife and our brand new daughter. And when I looked up after I won that race and I saw her in the stand, then it was all worth it, and everything fell together. The victory is greatest when a relationship is at the heart of what you're living for. See? John 14, 1-3 is to remind us the relationship is what matters. That Jesus is my forever friend is the one who's coming. And that's why I'm so cheer-filled and hopeful. See? Uh, that's the reason. Would you please get this in your study guide so that you don't forget it? The reason why contagious reason number four is such good news is because it is preceded by contagious reason number one. Please make sure always number one is what you begin with. Begin with number one. We are not abandoned on some godforsaken planet marooned at the corner of the universe. No, 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 no. The God of the universe is our friend, and He's coming back soon. When I'm ready, I'm coming back for you, He says. Wow. A world that is ripe and ready for this contagious hope. All right. Two more quick ones, and then we're out of here. Key text number five. Would you jot it down? Now, look, at one out of five texts in the New Testament is devoted to the second coming of Jesus. So you can put any text you want in this particular one. I love Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. Would you write that in? Because it ends with such a buoyant, cheerful optimism. That's why you can, be, you can be so confident when you share this contagious reason. Let's put the words of Jesus on the screen here. 
Luke 21:25, Jesus said, Before I come, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Is this something to be afraid of? No, no, Jesus says, Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption, your de- Deliverance is drawing nigh. Be optimistic. Be buoyant. With contagious reason number four. By the way, would you please keep this in mind? You might have to jot this down because it's not in your study guide. Would you please keep this in mind? You may go and say, I heard it in church. Jesus is coming within the lifetime of every postmodern, post-Christian, secular Westerner who is alive today. You write that down. Jesus is coming within your lifetime. He is coming within my lifetime. That's why this contagious reason is so critical. You say, how do you know, Dwight? I'll tell you how I know. Because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed unto a mortal to die once, and then the judgment. When you die, it is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every postmodern, post-Christian, secular, pagan friend that I have is going to meet Jesus one way or the other in his lifetime, in her lifetime. I mean, you put it that way, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? You don't have time to waste. You can, well, I'll, I'll just I'll get to my friends some other... No, no, no. You don't know how long that friend is living, do you? Share this contagious reason. Give them hope. Give them hope. The soon coming of Christ. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Choose Jesus today. All right, final one. Key text number six. Would you write it in, please? Isaiah 25. Oh, and you've got to write the verses backwards. I don't mean write the numbers backwards. The verses backwards. So it goes nine, eight, seven. Would you do it that way, please? We'll read them backwards. Nine, then we'll read verse eight, then we'll read verse seven, and you'll see why. Let's read them. Let's start with verse 9. It will be said on that day, this is the day of Christ's return, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him so that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. What's the good news about the soon coming of Christ? Go back to verse 8. For He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of His people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. You know what? When Jesus comes, there's going to be no more more death. Now look at verse 7. And He, God, will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. Do you know what that sheet is? Have you seen it on the news when they find a body and they're gurneying that body out of a house? What is the body covered with every single time? It's the sheet of death. You know what? Get this, please. Don't you ever... You're saying, but, but Dwight, but you, you, you're not only sharing good news about the second coming of Jesus, you're now bringing heaven into the picture. And that's the point I'm trying to get to. Don't you ever share the good news of Jesus coming without weaving it with the glorious news about heaven. 
I'll tell you what the postmodern person is saying. Hey, listen, I, I don't know the Bible. I don't know a thing about apologetics. I could care less what verses you have. I want to know what does this hope do to you? Why are you so hopeful about the world ending that way? And you say, I want to tell you, death will be eliminated. Tears will be wiped away. There will be no more September 11s. You just say there will be no more September 11s in a perfect utopia. Because postmodernism longs for a perfect utopia. And you have the promise of one. Don't you ever just share, oh, by the way, Jesus is coming soon, the world's going to blow up. Oh, is that very contagious? Very, man, I want to be there when that happens, don't you? No, you don't want to do that. Jesus is coming soon, and when He comes, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more divorce, no more bankruptcy, no more failure, no more dysfunction, no more depression, no more. It'll all be over when Jesus comes. There isn't a human being alive in the West today that would not say, oh, if it only were true. No, it's true. But you have to be contagious. Tell them the reason for the hope that you have in you. Ladies and gentlemen, in the September, post-September 11 world in which we now find ourselves, it is time for contagious reason number four to move to the front of your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the best news there is. No more death. No more tears. Ever again. I want to end with those two words that Todd Beamer on that faded United Flight 93 cried out into a cell phone. The president of the nation has quoted him now. The words have become immortalized. They are everywhere. They're on T-shirts now. They're two words that he spoke. You remember those two words, don't you? Two words. Let's. How'd it go? Let's. Roll. Because if you're going to change how the story ends, you've got to get involved in the story. Just before they attacked, they, they rushed the cockpit. You remember those two words? Let's roll. Because if you're going to change how the story ends, you've got to put yourself into the story. You have postmodern, you have post-Christian secular Westerner friends. If you're going to change how their story ends, you have to put yourself into their story. Let's roll. Let's roll. You know why we can roll? Because we have this hope. And it's because of that hope I say with you, let us roll in the name of Jesus Christ. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.